Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. For over two years, the former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang campaigned across the country, building a surprising coalition along the political spectrum. The main promise driving his campaign was his freedom dividend. The freedom dividend was a guaranteed income of $1,000 to every American, every month. This dividend is a form of universal basic income, an idea that's been around for centuries and one that's gaining in popularity, especially during the pandemic. People who support versions of universal basic income say it would solve many problems from job loss brought on by developing technology to poverty. So has a universal basic income ever been tried before? What are the arguments for and against it? Acton's Reverend Ben Johnson joins me to answer. If you like this episode, don't forget to share Acton Line with a friend or family member and leave a like or comment wherever you're listening. Today, I am speaking with Reverend Ben Johnson. He's a managing editor here at Acton and is also the executive editor of Acton's flagship journal, Religion and Liberty. Father, thank you so much for being here. Always good to be with you, Caroline. Father, how would you define universal basic income or UBI? What is it? Universal basic income in its simplest form means that there is a certain income that everyone in society should make and no one should be allowed to fall below that level. Now, it's been supported at different times through history by various people, and there have been different uh, interpretations of how this would be implemented. Some variants are truly universal. Everyone would receive the same amount of money every month from the government. So Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Michael Bloomberg would get the same check as you, me, or the woman who just moved into the local homeless shelter. Uh, Certain variants of that, for example, Andrew Yang's Freedom Dividend would be the the most prominent recent example where everyone in America would get $1,000 a month regardless of where you're from. Uh, That would be universal. Uh, Also, uh, two Democratic House members, Tim Ryan and Ro Khanna uh, from Ohio and California, respectively, introduced a bill that would temporarily implement a $2,000 a month UBI to every American from the age of 16 upward. Uh, for until the economy returns to its pre-lockdown levels. This is allegedly temporary, but if uh, Robert Higgs in his book Crisis and Leviathan said anything, it's that government programs introduced in the wake of crises are never reversed. Uh, The government tends to work as a one-way ratchet, whether it's economic programs instituted to fight the Great Depression or NSA surveillance in the wake of 9-11. But that's one kind of universal income, that everyone gets the same check from the government without any means testing. The other is more the kind that was favored by Milton Friedman, which was known as the negative income tax. And the idea is there is a certain income below which no one would be able to fall. So everyone would file income taxes. And when you send your income tax form in, if you make less than the universal basic income, you would get a check that looks like a government refund check. It would bring your income up to that level. So those are the two major forms that the UBI has taken over the years. Let's dig in even more to the history of how UBI has been supported in the past. Um, As I was doing research for this podcast, I was surprised at some of the earliest figures who supported versions of, you know, guaranteed income or universal basic income um, from the English lawyer and philosopher St. Thomas More to the political theorist Thomas Paine. So who was it that first 
put forward the idea of UBI and, and how has it evolved over the years? Uh, Thomas Moore is certainly one of the earliest examples. Thomas Paine's example is uh, somewhat different than a UBI in the sense that uh, quite often people who believe in some form of a government dividend are all wrapped together in the same universal blanket of universal basic income, but uh, without any kinds of distinctions. Thomas Paine in, um, in a book, um, in the, called it Agrarian Justice, was the heading of this. Uh, essentially, what he said was that the earth was common to everyone before, before private property. When people began an agrarian way of life, they would improve the land, and it was impossible to separate their improvements from the land itself. But uh, in order to compensate for that difference, there would be a national fund, and everyone, when they turned 21, would receive what was at that time 15 pounds sterling. But uh, that was a one-time lump sum payment, more in the line of, um, say, uh, the stakeholder society that was uh, contemplated uh, at the uh, turn of the last millennium with um, the George W. Bush administration and and others uh, who were influencing the Bush administration spoke of a stakeholder society. In some cases, everyone upon turning 21 would get a lump sum payment from the government. Uh, That's that's distinct from an ongoing monthly check, uh, which is more in uh, in line of the thinking of certainly Bernie Sanders and uh, Andrew Yang and others that we're talking about today. Um, but there, there have been those who have favored that form of, um, of UBI and others uh, like Milton Friedman and Charles Murray, the great libertarian theorist and thinker, who believe that the UBI would be the one great universal anti-poverty program. So the idea was uh, for Milton Friedman, the program that we spoke about, the negative income tax, everyone would make a certain guaranteed income, and the government would stabilize that income if you made less. However, that would replace every other government program. So there would be no food stamps, no Section 8, no Medicaid. Uh, This is more of a universal credit system, not all that different from the system that's facing some very real challenges in the UK. Richard Nixon actually uh, picked this idea up in 1972 to co-opt it from uh, Democratic candidate George McGovern. Uh, but it didn't get off the ground. It was one of many programs that uh, Richard Nixon did not get to investigate too thoroughly in his second term. But there were certain experiments with this uh, in the United States and elsewhere. None of them have gone particularly well. Let's talk about those experiments. So I know that there was a pilot program that implemented UBI in Seattle and Denver. What did that look like? Yes, in uh, Seattle and Denver, that was really the um, the SIME and DIME, the uh, Seattle and Denver Income Maintenance Experiment, or Simon Dime. Uh, the the idea was this was an, a, a test case of the negative income tax. And so everyone would file, and then if you made less than a certain amount per household, the government would stabilize up to a certain amount, uh, which was fairly generous for that time period. This was in the late 1960s through the 70s. Finally, the government report was written in 1983, so it took a very long time for this program to uh, have a sort of a lumbering, lingering death. The Carter administration tried to keep the experiments alive, and then the Reagan administration finally brought it to a completion. And when we saw the government report, we found out why. The vast majority of people who uh, received this did not increase their work amount. In fact, they decreased the amount of work that they, uh, they performed. They decreased the number of hours that they worked, and they decreased the amount of earned income that they received. So uh, to some extent, uh, in some cases, up to 234 hours a year, talking taking an additional five and a half, six weeks off per year uh, from work. People who did this could not be induced, uh, despite the government's attempts, to get them involved in additional training. Uh, 
there was an, often an argument that people work low-income jobs, but if they had the opportunity, they would improve themselves. They would uh, take a college course or take some kind of training, get a better job, and therefore they'd have a better income. And they would introduce more tax uh, activity, and therefore the overall economy would get better. Or that people would take the time off, but they would volunteer more. They found that none of this actually came about. Uh, in fact, the uh, Denver project went so far as to subsidize tuition. And the higher the, uh, the higher the subsidy, the more people took it up. What they found was that people didn't study anything that actually improved their job chances. Uh, the exact wording of the report is, the formal schooling was not, however, typically job-related, so their lost income was not compensated for by any job-related skills acquired. So they also found, by the way, as a, a side note, that divorce increased because of the way that program was structured. Uh, it, particularly, every household that filed got a certain income. So if two people are working, both incomes count. If you're only one individual and your ex-wife is another individual, you both get the full amount. So as you can imagine, people maximize their income to a certain degree. And again, this is the late 60s and early 70s. We were still robust social sanctions against that kind of uh, against divorce in general. Uh, No-fault divorce was just becoming uh, a societal phenomenon in the late 1960s. So as we know, family breakdown is highly correlated not only with poverty, but with lower educational attainment, higher drug abuse, higher substance abuse, lower self-esteem, more, uh, more crime, uh, more problems in general. And so uh, when the 1983 report was written up, uh, it was written in the most antiseptic language you can imagine. But it says, it's unlikely that any national NIT program would be neutral with respect to marital stability. The potential for such effects must not be ignored. And how much in that case did citizens receive per month? Uh, it brought them, it, it wasn't a monthly uh, check in that case. It brought them up to a certain income, uh, at least, I believe, $5,800 a year at that time, which, uh, again, this was in the late 1960s, so you'd have to apply by several factors over. But it was, it was not a, a robust income, but it was, it was substantial. So if people were to say to that, well, if people just receive, say, equal to Andrew Yang's freedom dividend, you know, $1,000 flat per month. And that wouldn't change based on what job you get. They say, well, no matter whether or not you have, you're in, you know, the top five, four, three percent um, of earners or in the bottom, you receive the same flat amount per month. So why would that disincentivize people to work? And that's, uh, this is exactly something that was tested out in the Netherlands. Um, so the idea that um, uh, someone would receive a, a flat check from the government uh, and it would be the same amount regardless of means testing, there would be, uh, whether it was the top 1% or the bottom 1%, everyone would get the same check and it would be truly a universal basic income. Uh, that was what was tried in the Netherlands for two years with a very supportive government. And particularly what they found was they thought somehow this would increase employment. And uh, in fact, they found the exact opposite was the case. In reality, people worked less. Uh, simply put, uh, a lot of people are willing to uh, take additional time off if they have the opportunity. The, the overall message of all of these cases, whether it's uh, Seattle and Denver or the Netherlands for two years, Ontario also had an experiment that uh, went on for a few years. The conservative provincial government of, uh, of Ontario ended up pulling the plug on it. They all found the exact same thing. And uh, really, it's probably most pronounced in Ontario, 
where uh, nearly three quarters of Ontario UBI participants did not begin any new training. Uh, 80% of those who were unemployed remained unemployed. Less than one in four of people who were working full-time remained in full-time employment. So what we find is that when people have a guaranteed income that they don't have to work for, most people are working for an income. And so they become less productive, less engaged. And there are other negative consequences associated with this as well. To, to dig into the Ontario program, they found that uh, the unemployed uh, were, were not only um, not, um, not moving into training or employment, but the unemployed actually saw their physical health deteriorate while they were receiving universal basic income. So they're receiving even less physical exercise or less physical activity, perhaps, uh, than they would have if they were going to an office, or perhaps there are other reasons that they might have um, uh, negative health impacts, uh, perhaps uh, based on substance abuse or other, other issues. But all of that to say that the health effects have all been negative. The one and only thing that people who support this have been able to point to in the data is that when they survey people who've received a universal basic income, they say that they feel less stress, less anxiety, and more positive self-esteem. I don't know that that's worth $2.8 trillion a year. Now, I'd like to go back and talk about the conservative and libertarian support for UBI because um, many of them have voiced support because they say that a guaranteed income would reduce government spending and intrusion. They say that it would totally replace welfare, unemployment, disability insurance, plus even Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare. That seems almost too good to be true. So what I mean, what is what is the cost difference there? Is that realistic? It could be. Charles Murray uh, wrote a, an entire book about this. And in his book, he, he more or less offset the entire cost of the UBI by abolishing all of these agencies and rolling them into uh, one program, which is what Milton Friedman had envisioned in the 1960s. Uh, the reality of that occurring, I think, is, is quite low. Uh, Andrew Yang, who uh, was proposing this, uh, certainly did not propose abolishing other agencies. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, introduced a, what would be a quote-unquote temporary $2,000 a month check during the coronavirus epidemic. You also would not pay any health care or housing or uh, mortgage costs, and you couldn't be laid off for any reason. My guess would be that, uh, in fact, what will happen is the idea that we're going to abolish any government program is virtually inconceivable in the United States. Um, Robert Higgs, again, he, he spoke about this government acts more or less as a one-way ratchet. When a new government program is introduced, as Ronald Reagan once said, it's the closest thing you'll see to eternal life on earth. Uh, you know, the CDC was, was uh, introduced in 1946 to combat malaria in the South, and it's still going today. Now, it's still doing good work, but in general, what you see is that targeted programs are introduced, and then they, their scope continually expands, and they are kept alive long past their expiration date. So I think what is more likely to happen is that uh, government programs never fail. They can only be failed. Uh, so so any time that uh, you fail, uh, any time that a government program does not work, the answer is always throw more money at it. Ultimately, I think that, uh, first of all, these programs will not be abolished. And second of all, the amount of the UBI, which in his case would be $13,000 a year, just a little bit more than $1,000 a month. And by the way, he would compel you to purchase uh, comprehensive, uh, I'm sorry, a catastrophic health care insurance for $3,000 every year. And by the way, that does not become more constitutional because Charles Murray compels you to do it than it does. <laughs> it compels you to do it. But but uh, that's that's the idea behind his UBI is that generally it would bring health costs down and it would replace all of government. I think that the idea you will keep 
a, a UBI that low when the answer to everything in government is more money is ridiculous. Ultimately, the UBI will become part of the bidding war of politicians to try and buy your vote with your own money. Let's fast forward to today and talk about why UBI is growing more popular. The first and most pressing one on everyone's minds at the moment is, of course, the coronavirus. Um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said in April that, quote, the pandemic may have precipitated this change of heart, but the pandemic alone isn't why we need a guaranteed income. She says the American economy is plagued by instability and fragility, much of it caused by staggering levels of inequality. If we want to create a more resilient economy and country, a guaranteed income should be permanent American policy, not just an emergency measure to help with this crisis, unquote. There's a lot in there. What would you say to that? I guess that shows the extent to which uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad are are wagging the dog of the Democratic Party. Uh, That's not historically Nancy Pelosi's position. Uh, She is she's very much progressive, but she's not generally been a socialist. So uh, that says a lot just about the Democratic Party's inner politics. As to the the prudential aspect of it, I think that it's quite negative. Uh, As you noted, during the coronavirus, uh, the government has just set out checks, stimulus checks to everyone. And the government has done this at various times. The Ford administration did it. George W. Bush did it. And universally, they have not worked. They don't stimulate the economy because people realize this is a one-time check from the government. And uh, so people sometimes save it, but uh, it generally doesn't actually change anything. Uh, So there's no economic spike associated with it. Uh, So once again, you see Washington's answer is double down, triple down. Let's let's double the amount of the check and make it perpetual. And in fact, what most people want, uh, not only not only in uh, income, but in life, uh, as Arthur Brooks has noted in his books, is earned success, which means people want to go to work. So the economic lockdowns that are taking place uh, for those who are non-essential employees have been catastrophic. And rather than address the underlying issue that perhaps the lockdowns have gone too far or gone on long enough, and that if work can be reinstituted in a way that's consistent with public safety and health, taking all of the proper precautions and so on, but if work can be stimulated in that way, the economy will come back and people will begin to see their economy pick up, their personal income will increase as it was before the coronavirus. That's really the underlying part of all this. There's one thing that's missing in everything that we're talking about. There's a big difference between an earned check and a government check, namely that when you're earning money, that's because of the productivity that you create for someone else in the economy. You're serving a need or you're providing a service that other people are willing to pay you for, and you're doing so very well. And something very real is being produced as a result of that. Uh, It could be a product or it could be a service, but something is real and tangible as a result of your activity. When the government writes you a check, there's nothing behind it except government fiat money. And there's no real uh, productive sector of the economy. Everything that the government gives has to be taken out of the productive sector of the economy. So every dollar, dollar for dollar from the government is either being taxed or it's being borrowed into existence. And as a result, we end up either with massive debt or heavy taxation, which discourages economic activity and lowers your real earned income, or we have inflation that punishes savers. But that's really what happens when we supercharge government spending. And this program, uh, even at the minimal level of $1,000 a month, is a $3 trillion program. It's as large as the entire federal budget multiple times over. 
I'd like to also address one of the reasons that's so often cited in support of UBI, and that's um, levels of income inequality. Often when I hear people cite this, it seems as if they're saying that income inequality is equal to poverty. Um, And they also say that that income inequality is growing at a rate that we've never seen before. So is that true? Uh, It's not true, just to be candid. Um, There was a growth in the Gini coefficient, if you measure that, from the 1980s and 90s. But even people who've been outspoken about this, like a professor that I wrote an article about for the Power blog uh, named Marx from Belgium, uh, spelled like Karl Marx, but uh, his first name is spelled I-V-E, spoke about the uh, the fact that the general income inequality fell throughout the 2000s because of the economic deflation that took place during that time. Uh, anytime you have a war or anytime you have an economic downturn, then you have a collapsing of economic inequality. But inequality is not poverty. There's a massive difference between these two. You can have 100% equality in Burkina Faso and everyone will be poor. Or you can live in the United States where you have a Bill Gates and you have U.S. poverty, which is multiple worlds removed away from anything that you would see in a place like Sierra Leone. So American poverty is riches compared to most of the rest of the world. So uh, there's, there's no question about that. I think if people are concerned about economic inequality, frankly, a universal basic income would be the worst policy or one of the worst that they could implement because it harms those it's intended to help. Um, let's, let's keep in mind that a universal basic income begins the moment that you enter adulthood. So this is roughly the time you're graduating high school, unless you're, unless uh, Tim Ryan and Rokana have their way, in which case it's age 16. Can't imagine how I might have destroyed myself with $2,000 a month at age 16. But uh, if you have these harmful programs that are implemented uh, at age 18, let's say, and you get $2,000 a month, we know that people who receive that are not as likely to go in school uh, as they are in other ways. In fact, uh, it's subject to what I like to call ageflation which is when you're younger, uh, it, it takes much less money to look like a lot of money. The older you get, the more money it takes to look like a lot of money. So when you're young, uh, $2,000 a month looks like a fortune. And it might induce you not to begin work life or not to begin schooling. And it looks like a lot of money until you have a wife or a child come along. And then suddenly that doesn't seem like very much money at all. But now you're starting at the absolute bottom rung of the ladder. That's what's going to increase income inequality is keeping people from increasing, to use a a term that's become uh, somewhat uh, nefarious here recently, human capital stock, to increase their human capital. uh, That uh, if you keep people from using their God-given skills and gifts and ability to create productivity in the economy, that's going to keep them locked in government dependence. Now, even before the coronavirus really hit, there was... Um, a somewhat decent push, I would say, in Congress to pass a bill implementing a variant of a guaranteed income. But I think that in a way, coronavirus will really put um, some more steam behind this movement, would you say? It certainly will. I mean, you, just like the economic downturn was one of the big turnings to democratic socialism among young people, you saw this massive spike in support for people like Bernie Sanders and the Bernie Sanders revolution or AOC. And uh, in this particular uh, coronavirus epidemic, you see some people who are turning to the government quite understandably. And even the most libertarian philosophers like uh, Friedrich von Hayek and von Mises spoke about the role that the government has when society cannot, uh, society must provide for people who cannot work for themselves. And right now it's the government compelling people not to work. So there is a role for government to play. 
uh, generally, I believe, because of U.S. constitutional order, that should be devolved to the states. The federal government doesn't have a constitutional role in that. But I, I think that it's certainly going to increase calls uh, for, for help. But what people are not seeing is that the hand that's feeding them is also the hand that is keeping them in captivity because they're the ones keeping them from going back to their jobs. Uh, if it's possible to go back to work, again, observing all proper protocols and all safety standards that can be maintained, uh, it very well may be shown that uh, the lockdown has been worse than uh, the actual coronavirus outbreak has been in terms of public health. One of the most dangerous things that strikes me about proposals for versions of UBI is that they claim they can solve all of our economic problems from the top down. And it's, I think, reflective of a dangerous mindset of looking first to the government for cushioning, for job loss, etc. And it just seems utopian. Uh, from Sir Thomas More in his book, Utopia, it's quite truly utopian uh, in, in the most uh, denotative sense of the word. You're right. Uh, the idea is that uh, everyone will turn to the government. The government will provide for all of our needs. And uh, this has generally been used as part of a utopian vision to completely recreate society. So uh, when modern supporters of UBI speak of uh, the impact that it will have, it's not generally, again, from any statistical or, or uh, scientific basis. The studies have shown that this does not improve public health, does not improve people using their skills and improving their, their mind and, and becoming more creative and more productive. And by the way, most people in Ontario who received the check did not, did not increase their voluntary, uh, their voluntary uh, participation either. So they didn't volunteer in organizations any more than they did before. So this is not something that's going to regenerate society in that way. What they want to change is the economic structure of capitalism in the free market. That's really the hinge of the support for the UBI. The idea is that if everyone receives a program, it's almost impossible to repeal it. That's why Social Security for so long was the third rail of American politics. It was impossible to even discuss reducing or reforming Social Security. It's still an impending crisis that has not been fully addressed because everyone receives it. And if everyone receives it, then you have a built-in lobby in favor of maintaining and expanding the program. So the idea is if everyone can be dependent on the government, then you can begin to transform and tweak around the edges precisely how much and in what ways government provides for people. And eventually you end up with full-blown socialism. What are some resources that have helped you really think clearly about this specific issue? The most significant reading that I've done on this, and I would recommend it to everyone, there were a series of professors who uh, decided that they wanted to look into what happened at the Ontario UBI experiment. Ontario chose a few towns, uh, Thunder Bay and a few others, that everyone would have uh, up to $24,000 a year, $2,000 a month per couple. And they pulled the plug on it because it was not working, and they didn't release the data. So professors at McGill University and a few others had a widespread interview of people who participated and they published the results. Reading those results will sour you on any UBI. It's, it says clearly in there, for example, people are three times more likely to move to unemployment than employment. Uh, people are more than twice as likely to move to unemployment than to move into schooling. People have worse physical health. People don't volunteer as a result. People are simply getting a check and not working or being as productive. So if you really want to know um, the brass tacks, it's very simple, very simply the facts. I, the theory of it, I, I think, does not work in itself. 
But the facts, the outcome of that and the Netherlands project, if you read those two reports, I think would sour you on ever supporting the UBI. The facts simply don't bear out that this will be helpful. In fact, it harms all those, particularly those most intended to help. Well, I will definitely be including those in our show notes. Uh, Father, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to Act In Line. Our podcast team has a lot of fun putting this show together for you. And really, at the end of the day, what matters most to our team is that we're covering stories and topics that matter most to you. We love hearing from you. So don't hesitate to reach out and let us know what you think of the show or let us know what you'd like to hear covered. You can email us at actinline at actin.org.